This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, it's Dawn. This is an update to an episode I released in September of 2021. I recently spoke with an investigator and wanted to provide you with that exclusive interview. Just a reminder that Method and Madness is a true crime podcast. Some content may not be suitable for all. Listener discretion is advised. So we're talking about The Watcher, the case of a family in Westfield, New Jersey, who, while in the process of moving into a new home, received threatening letters signed The Watcher. The story became international news as the contents of the letters were made public, and the Broadus family of Westfield lived in fear, particularly for their three young children who were named in some of the letters. Maria and Derek Broadus struggled with the agonizing decision to officially move into their dream home or sell it and move on. So many theories. Was the Watcher some supernatural force that was watching and writing? Was the Watcher a local stalker? Did the Broadus family write the letters themselves? Was it a neighbor annoyed and fixated on the home because of their renovations? I sat down with Westfield detective Baron Chambliss who investigated the case, I wanted to get his opinion on this mystery. Who does he think was responsible? Who is the watcher? He had a lot to say. Here is the original episode of The Watcher if you're unfamiliar with the case or if you just want a refresh of the details. Stick around. My conversation with Detective Baron Chambliss follows immediately after. This is a case I've been wanting to cover for a while. It's both fascinating and frustrating, with tons of theories which I'll go into at the end of the episode. Let's dive in. Westfield, New Jersey, located less than an hour outside of Manhattan, is a charming, historic town, just under seven square miles. It was established in 1794 and has a train station, parks, and a downtown with shops and restaurants. The Rialto Movie Theater, now closed, with its marquee out front, has a deep cinematic history, opening September 1st, 1922, featuring Cops, starring Buster Keaton. The downtown area has war memorials and adjacent to Gateway Entrance Park, there's a 9-11 Memorial Park, which is dedicated to the three Westfield natives, that lost their lives on September 11th. A study conducted in 2014 and posted by Neighborhood Scout ranked Westfield, New Jersey as the 30th safest town in the United States, sandwiched between Florence, Arizona and West Lynn, Oregon. It's an affluent suburban community, and many of its residents are commuters who work in nearby New York City. 
But despite being safe, charming, and family-friendly, Westfield has notoriety due to the 1971 murders of five members of the List family. The murderer, John List, shot his elderly mother, his wife, and his three children, one by one inside their home, before locking up the house on Hillside Avenue, driving away, and remaining a fugitive while living under a new identity. He was caught, with the help of America's Most Wanted, in 1989. All seemed relatively quiet in Westfield until 2014 when the town made international headlines again, this time because of a letter. John and Andrea Woods owned the house at 657 Boulevard for 23 years and sold it for $1.3 million in June 2014. According to Realtor.com, the home is described as a stunning, one-of-a-kind, turn-of-the-century colonial, with a dramatic wraparound front porch with impressive curb appeal on a picturesque street. Majestic grand foyer, period moldings, hardwood floors, stunning master suite with custom dressing room and renovated bath. Endless character and features in this one-of-a-kind home. The buyers of this stunning colonial were Derek and Maria Broadus, parents of three young children, one son and two daughters. Maria had grown up in Westfield while her husband Derek was originally from Maine. The closing on the house was in early June 2014, but before officially moving in, the Broadus family wanted to do some moderate repairs and renovations, which cost them an approximate $100,000. Just days after closing, Derek was at his new six-bedroom house one evening alone, painting. On his way out, around 10 p.m., he checked the mailbox where he found the usual bills and junk mail, as well as an envelope addressed to, quote, the new owner. There was no return address, but it was postmarked from Kearney, New Jersey. The letter inside was typed and read, Dearest new neighbor, at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming my grandfather watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Are there more on the way? Do you need to fill the house with the young blood that I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small? for the growing family? Or was it greed 
to bring me to your children. Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. The Watcher. Derek went back inside the house, turned off all the lights, and phoned the police. When an officer arrived at 657 Boulevard, he read the letter. It was baffling. He asked Derek if he knew of anyone that could have written the letter. He didn't. He advised Derek to move a piece of construction from the lawn and anything else that could have been used to throw at one of the many windows. Finally, the officer said he'd look into the matter. Derek went home to his old house, also in Westfield, where his family was still residing, and he told his wife about the letter. They sent the previous owners, the Woodses, an email telling them Derek got a letter from The Watcher, and that in said letter it mentioned a letter had also been sent to The Woods. The next day, Andrea Woods replied and said that they had received one letter a week before closing that she described as strange but not frightening. The writer had thanked her for taking care of the house. She figured it was a harmless prank and threw the letter away. Maria Broadus met with Detective Lugo of the Westfield Police, who told her not to mention the letters to anyone, particularly the residents living in her new neighborhood, as any one of them could be responsible and considered a suspect. The letter didn't seem like a random hoax. Whoever wrote it knew how old the house was, had obviously been in close enough proximity to see the contractors, and knew about the couple's three children, who had played in the backyard a few times. Unbeknownst to Derek and Maria, the police interviewed some of their neighbors, one family living just next door. They were the Langfords. Peggy, a woman in her 90s, lived there with a few of her adult children who were in their 60s. According to the New York Magazine article written about the Watcher, one of the Langfords, Michael, was described by a neighbor as a bit of a Boo Radley character, a little eccentric. He had a tendency to peek in windows or walk through neighbors' yards, but he would also help people out by bringing in their newspapers. Overall, he was described as mostly harmless. Detective Lugo said that despite some similarities in the letter to the way in which Michael Langford spoke, there was really no hard evidence to tie him to the Watcher. The Broadduses were spooked. They kept the letters a secret and didn't mention them to their children. They proceeded with caution, though, still stopping by the house to get it ready for moving, but remaining alert at all times, not letting the kids out of their sight for a moment. Their youngest was just five years old. A few suspicious events occurred over the next couple of weeks. While at a barbecue, a neighbor casually told Derek that it would be, quote, nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. And a contractor's sign on the front yard of 657 Boulevard was removed sometime in the middle of the night. Then, two weeks after the first letter arrived, Maria Broadus discovered another letter in the mailbox at 657 Boulevard. 
She didn't open it, just immediately called the police as she recognized the handwriting on the envelope as identical to that of the first letter. The second letter read, Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you brought to me. You certainly say their names often. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession, and now you are too, Broadus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be, in a time when I ran its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room imagining life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood, but then it got old and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died, and now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. The watcher had included details in the letter that indicated he had in fact been watching the Broadus family. He knew the children's names and that one of the girls had been using an art easel, which was inside an enclosed porch and difficult to see from the road as the windows were hidden by shrubs. The watcher even addressed Derek and Maria as Mr. and Mrs. Broadus, misspelling their last name. After the receipt of that letter, Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. They weren't taking any chances, and by this point, they weren't sure they'd even be moving in. They would stand on the front porch of their 100-plus-year-old colonial looking at the tree-lined street of large, stately homes, wondering if they were being watched at any moment. This letter was more threatening than the first, wondering who would sleep in what bedroom so the watcher could plan better, you would never hear them scream, and what was inside the walls. 
an inspection inside the walls revealed nothing more than a lack of sufficient insulation. With the Westfield Police Department getting nowhere with their investigation, Derek was determined to find out the identity of the watcher, determined to put an end to the harassment by someone who had threatened his children. If it were a neighbor, could it be the ones next door, the Langfords, lived on the side where it would be easiest to see the art easel on the porch. And they had lived in their home for decades. It was around this time that Westfield police revealed to the Broadduses that they'd already spoken with next-door neighbor Michael Langford, and while they weren't certain he was responsible for the letters, they felt that if he were, well, he wouldn't be sending any more after their talk. Unfortunately for the investigation, there were no fingerprints or other identifying factors found in the letters or on the envelope. It was looking bleak. So Derek installed cameras throughout the home, and on several occasions— He snuck in, turned off the lights, and hid inside in the dark, staking it out to see if he could catch anyone coming onto the property or looking in windows. He researched the neighborhood to see which of his neighbors had lived on Boulevard for several decades, as the letters had indicated, and the Langfords next door were the only family that had been there that long, since the 1960s. Derek and Maria hired a private investigator and a former FBI agent to help them figure out the identity of the watcher. Nothing turned up in the background check of the Langfords, but an analysis of the letters provided a somewhat helpful profile of the watcher. Based on some of the wording and the old-fashioned way that the couple was addressed, M slash M was written rather than Mr. and Mrs., revealed that the watcher was someone older, 50s or 60s, and well-read. However, the letters were also full of typos, and according to the article in New York Magazine, the first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, which was a Wednesday. In an effort to lure the Langfords to send another letter, if they were in fact the watcher, police recommended that the Broadduses send them a notice, a neighborly note to let them know they planned on tearing the house at 657 Boulevard down. The notice was sent, but it didn't smoke them out. Other things of note were the residents living behind 657 Boulevard, who had two chairs in their yard that were positioned in a way that looked directly at the Broadduses' home. Were they watching? Several weeks later, a third letter arrived in the mailbox. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. By now, the Broadduses were experiencing so much stress and turmoil caused by the Watcher and the Watcher's threats on their children. They could hardly sleep, plagued with nightmares. They were living with Maria's mother while paying for their nightmare house, and friends were asking why they weren't moved in yet. 
Because they'd been advised to keep the letters to themselves, it caused a lot of speculation from their inner circle on why their excitement over their dream house was suddenly gone. By December of 2014, the has made the decision to sell 657 Boulevard. The risk was simply not worth it. They listed the home in February 2015 for $1.4 million, more than they paid, hoping to get the money back that they'd put into renovations. Their plan was to disclose the letters to anyone who put in an offer. But the letters would soon become national news. In June 2015, the Broadduses filed a lawsuit in Elizabeth Superior Court against the Woodses, claiming they knew about the watcher when they sold the home and should have disclosed that information. Derek and Maria said they would have never gone through with the purchase if they'd known the home came with a stalker. Charles Sullivan, a law professor at Seton Hall Law School, said, quote, There's a duty on the part of the seller to disclose to the buyer any defect that would impact the marketability of a property, but New Jersey doesn't have such laws. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed, but immediately after it was filed, it was discovered by a reporter who wrote a story and the story went viral. Soon, news of The Watcher was all over the internet and social media. The evening news reporting on The Watcher spread further than just the local New Jersey outlets. 657 Boulevard quickly became the venue for a media circus. News vans lined the street, and Derek and Maria were relentlessly pursued by reporters for the inside story. Americans were intrigued, fascinated, by what sounded like a real-life ghost story, a true mystery. Who was this boogeyman, and would more letters arrive? All of the attention came as a surprise to the residents of Westfield, who found out about the letters the same way everyone else did, on the news. It was frightening. There was an unknown stalker watching one of the town's families threatening to take their children. The watcher seemed obsessed and unhinged. People were freaking out, scared to walk down the street. As you can imagine, all of the negative focus on 657 Boulevard would make it very hard to sell, and the Broadus family would have a long road ahead of them. Six Fifty Seven Boulevard now had quite a reputation, and buyers weren't exactly lining up and down the sidewalk with offers. The few offers that Derek and Maria did receive were well below asking price. If they accepted, they'd have to take a huge loss. Meanwhile, retired Westfield detective Baron Chambliss was looking into the case. He discovered that forensic testing had been conducted on one of the letters, and that the DNA belonged to a woman. It was not a match to Maria Broadus. Around the same time, Derek and Maria were informed that the next-door neighbors in question, the Langford, they'd been eliminated as suspects, inexplicably. The case seemed to be going nowhere. There were no hot leads, and they seemed stuck with the house. Derek continued to investigate, asking neighbors if they recognized the watcher's handwriting even hiring Robert Leonard of the band Shanana, a forensic linguist, to take a look at the letters. You may remember him from the episode A Tight Leash of Forensic Files. He also examined the ransom note in the John Bonet Ramsey case to determine if it matched John Mark Carr's handwriting. Carr had made a false confession to being John Bonet's killer. 
So Robert Leonard looked into it. He examined the letters and then scoured the local forums online to see if there were any similar writings, but he wasn't able to find anyone that potentially matched the Watcher. According to the article in New York Magazine, Leonard thought that the Watcher may be a fan of Game of Thrones. Detective Chambliss, during his investigation, was surprised to learn that another family in Westfield had also received a letter from the Watcher around the time that the Broadduses received their first. The recipients of that letter didn't think it was threatening and had thrown it out. One night, while Detective Chambliss was staking out the house to watch for suspicious activity, he witnessed a car pull up in front of 657 Boulevard and stop for several minutes. It was a woman behind the wheel, and by running the plate and doing some digging, Chambliss found that the woman's boyfriend lived in the neighborhood and played video games under the nickname The Watcher. Attempts were made to question the boyfriend, but it never came to fruition, and nothing else came of it. In 2016, Derek and Maria still had the house on their hands and moved forward with a recommendation by their lawyer to sell the home to a developer who would tear down the house at 657 Boulevard and divide the lot up into two different houses. Maybe that would make it more attractive for buyers. In January 2017, the Board of Westfield met to review the application, along with about 100 Westfield residents, and the proposal was ultimately denied. After all was said and done, Maria felt that the town she'd grown up in cared more about the integrity of a home's architecture and the visual appeal of a neighborhood than about her and her family. Her family had experienced trauma by the hands of the watcher, and the investigation by both law enforcement and prosecutors was still falling short of concrete evidence. A few weeks later, the Broadduses learned that a family wanted to rent the home at 657 Boulevard. An additional clause on the lease said that if another letter came, the renters could get out of the agreement. Of course, that wasn't the end of it. Nobody lived happily ever after just yet. Two weeks after the renters moved in, they too received a letter. This one mentioned the renters specifically, was dated February 13th, and was addressed, Violent winds and bitter cold, to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. Where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of these so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers at the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. You are despised by the Watcher. All hail the Watcher. This letter was more threatening than the previous ones, warning that revenge could come, quote, maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, 
Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycle crashes, bones break, vacations end in tragedy. Mental breakdowns destroy lives. Maybe mental anguish from someone you don't know. Someone named The Watcher. Despite the ominous tone of this letter and the clear threats, and despite the fact that the renters did have dogs and the letter mentioned death of a pet, they agreed to stay in the home as long as Derek installed more cameras. The watcher's reach was much further than just 657 Boulevard. Residents of Westfield were divided, with some supporting the Broadus family and others saying that the letters were a hoax and that Derek was behind it all. Online, people were just as divided. Comments on Facebook posts and Reddit threads were flooded with theories ranging from the Broaduses having buyer's remorse and writing the letters themselves to get out of a huge purchase— to disgruntled neighbors that feared change. And then, more letters. People in Westfield who had loudly criticized Derek and Maria or claimed that they had invented the Watcher themselves, well, those residents began receiving their own mail on Christmas Eve. These residents received letters that supported the Broadduses and shunned those that dared to doubt their experience. The letters were signed, Friends of the Broadus Family. When later questioned about the validity of these letters, Derek Broadus admitted to Reeves Weidman of New York Magazine that he had written the anonymous letters, but swore they were the only letters he wrote. He hadn't even told Maria about them. Derek Broadus had reached his limit. In July 2019, 657 Boulevard was sold for 959000 More attacks online were targeted at the Broadduses, people who couldn't understand why they'd let someone chase them away from their dream home. There have been no reports of letters received after the new owners moved in. In February 2020, Peggy Langford, the mother of the family next door, died. Her son, Michael Langford, died in April 2020. As mentioned at the top of the episode, there's no lack of theories online around The Watcher. Comments on news articles, Facebook, thread after thread on Reddit, YouTube. Who doesn't love a good mystery? Before we get to the theories, let's first review the facts around the letters around The Watcher. The Woodses received one letter right before closing. The Bakes family lived in the home before the Woodses did from the early 1950s to the 90s, and they say that no weird incidents occurred and they never received any letters. A woman is not ruled out as being the watcher. Remember, DNA testing on a letter identified an unknown woman. The watcher is local. They knew about the comings and goings that were happening at 657 Boulevard, and they mailed their letters from a town 40 miles from Westfield. The Watcher does their homework or has inside knowledge of 657 Boulevard. According to letter analysis, the Watcher is on the older side, includes the current weather in his or her salutations, 
uses double spaces between sentences and possibly watches Game of Thrones. The Watcher wants young blood, but does not want the house at 657 Boulevard to change. The Langfords next door can easily see the art easel and have lived in the neighborhood since the 60s, but the police officially eliminated them as suspects. Former housekeepers and staff that worked at the home were also eliminated. Derek Broaddus admitted to writing anonymous letters out of spite to some of the residents of Westfield that denied his proposal. He and Maria have adamantly denied writing themselves the letters. To many, the Watcher sounds similar to the mystery of the Circleville letters. In the late 1970s, residents in Circleville, Ohio, began receiving harassing and threatening letters. This case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries, but never officially resolved. The Watcher story has also been compared to the Amityville Horror. When the Lutz family moved into the home in 1975, after a man had brutally murdered his family, so the Lutzes claimed that paranormal happenings were occurring in the home. Ghosts appearing in bedrooms, the mother, Kathy, levitating. They eventually made a deal to have a book made, and the popular movies were born. Now, people mostly see the Amityville horror as one big money-making hoax. So let's get into the theories that surround The Watcher. Let's start with the first. Derek and or Maria wrote the letters. They essentially invented The Watcher. They got in over their heads with the purchase of a million-plus-dollar home, and rather than back out of the purchase, they created an elaborate hoax to blame the former owners and to get their money back. Or maybe they attempted to back out of the purchase by sending the Woodses a letter before closing— hoping the letter would be disclosed and the Broadduses could either back out or negotiate a discount. What makes sense with this theory and what doesn't? In Westfield, the median price of a home is about 850000 Derek Broaddus is an executive at a firm in New York City, so buying a million-dollar home in Westfield certainly is fitting. Not knowing anything about their financial situation specifically, it's safe to say that this is a home they could potentially afford. If they could afford it, why would they try to back out of the purchase? And if they were trying to back out or find a loophole, why put money into renovations? Why spend time painting, paying contractors, not to mention all of the time and energy spent securing the home after receiving the letters? and the legal fees to obtain lawyers, as well as hiring investigators, forensic linguists. It was even reported that Derek Broaddus put a want ad in a local paper for retired military personnel to work out in the backyard daily. It seems like a huge, exhausting to-do for a couple with careers and three young children. If the Broadduses were trying to get out of the purchase, why send a final letter to the one couple that finally wants to rent it, especially if the renter's agreement stated that additional letters could lead to them breaking their lease? Why would the Broadduses risk that unless they took their chances to make it seem more likely that they weren't the watcher? A Gothamist article mentioned that in the 10 years prior to the Broadduses buying 657 Boulevard, that they had 12 mortgages and went from a $300,000 home to a home costing over a million. That could be evidence for or against the Broadduses being the watcher. If a bank is giving you that many mortgages, 
Well, you're probably doing something right. Are they real estate investors? Or the evidence could point to them having multiple mortgages because they can't manage their money or pay off bills, so they're remortgaging. Anyway, I didn't find any sources that confirmed that they actually had 12 mortgages. Why would the Broadduses create a hoax rather than just do the logical thing and not go through with the purchase if they couldn't afford it? Embarrassment or keeping up with the Joneses? And if they did create the letters, why wouldn't they do their homework? There's no law in New Jersey that states the Woodses would have to disclose a creepy letter to their buyers. Another theory. Someone who had been outbid during the purchasing of the home or someone who wanted the house. Reportedly, the Woodses never posted a for sale sign in front of the home. Was there someone in the neighborhood or a relative of a neighbor that wanted 657 Boulevard? Wanted it so badly that their plan was to chase the owners out. This theory in general isn't that far-fetched. We've seen how angry people can get at Christmas time when someone else snatches the last hot toy off the shelf. And people can be petty over small things, big things. Andrea Woods, the previous owner of the home, didn't think this theory carried any weight. She said only two people had backed out, one for a medical issue and the other had already found a new home. There's still the option that it was someone who wanted the house but never had a chance to place an offer. And because the Woodses received their letter before the home was officially sold, that probably points to a neighbor or someone in the area that had the inside knowledge of the upcoming sale. Another popular theory, a neighbor angry at what they perceived as intrusive renovations, maybe someone cranky at the notion of two empty nesters moving out and three young children moving in. There's also speculation that the watcher's letter sounds like someone with bitterness aimed directly at the Broadduses, a former coworker, employee, a family member with a grudge. Another theory popped up more recently online when Netflix announced that a miniseries based on the watcher was in production with Ryan Murphy at the wheel, and Naomi Watts and Bobby Cannavale set to star as Maria and Derek. Rumors are now saying that the couple invented the Watcher so that they could create a media sensation that would result in them receiving a lucrative offer from Hollywood. And I suppose there's always this option, that none of it is a hoax, and there really is a Watcher that is responsible for a Dutch colonial home. And that responsibility has been passed down for generations. Still don't know what's in those walls, though. Did I miss any theory? What do you think? Do you believe one of these theories? For me, I tend to lean toward grumpy neighbor with too much time on their hands. I reached out to Detective Lugo of the Westfield Police Department and to Derek Broadus. I never heard back. That was the original episode of The Watcher. Now, here is the exclusive interview with Detective Baron Chambliss. Just a note, this is just his opinion, of course. Thank you, Baron, for taking the time to talk with me. Can you tell us a little about your professional background? Okay. Uh, Well, firstly, I'm a proud graduate of Seton Hall University. Uh, I have a degree in criminal justice, and uh, I joined the Westfield Police Department in January of uh, 
1992. Um, I spent nine years as a uh, patrol officer before uh, being promoted to a plainclothes detective uh, in Westfield. At the time, there were uh, three steps uh, as an investigator. Uh, the first being plainclothes. Uh, the second step would be second grade. And then uh, things worked out and they kind of liked what you were doing. Uh, you were then elevated to a first grade detective. Uh, so uh, I was able to reach first grade detective in my time there. Nice. And now at the time that you were brought into the Watcher case, you were retired at that time? I wasn't retired. I was uh, in my last year, um, which was 2017. Uh, and uh, I was asked to uh, take a look at the case. Okay. And can you take me through those initial days when you investigated the case? Sure. Well, you, you know, just for the people listening or, um, you know, there comes a point in an investigation where things obviously are fresh. Um, and I didn't get the case at that time. Uh, witnesses had been spoken to. The victims had been spoken to. Uh, there was a canvas uh, of the uh, uh, neighborhood or area there for any potential witnesses. And by the time I got the case, in a sense, I don't want to uh, maybe tainted may not be the best word to use. But, you know, I, I kind of got the feeling that people were tired of, of hearing about it uh, when I uh, started doing some interviews. And basically, I was told, you know, I already spoke to this detective or this sergeant you know, regarding this, what you, do you guys have anything new? But, uh, so it was, it was kind of, you know, I don't want to say people were reluctant, but they had kind of talked about it already. Yeah. They were exhausted by the topic. Right. Right. Now you met with, uh, Derek and Maria Broadus. What was your take on them? Uh, I met with them. Very nice people. Um, they were obviously, uh, you know, as we all know, are very concerned about the uh, letters that they got. And I truly uh, believe, I said it then, I'll say it now, they truly were victims, uh, despite what, uh, you know, some others or other theories out there uh, would be. Um, I found them to be truthful and, uh, you know, very, they, they very credible people. Right. Now, in a previous conversation that you and I had, uh, you had talked about how you had looked at the letters and that one of the envelopes that the letters came in, that was tested for DNA. Could you tell us about that? One of the letters was tested, I believe, um, through or via uh, the Union County Prosecutor's Office. And uh, my understanding was that the uh, profile came back as a uh, female um, and that was you know the limited information I got regarding that and uh, and then I proceeded with what my theory was moving forward in the investigation and at the time um, Maria Broadus was ruled out is that correct uh, you, you know to be a hundred percent I don't think I mean I don't know um, but I would, I would assume that she was 
because that would have, if, if not, it would have ended the investigation and right. the investigation continued. Right, right. Now, who did you look into at the time that you were investigating? I looked into the uh, next-door neighbor. Um, Michael, I, Michael Langford? Yeah, and, and the, uh, I forget the, Mrs. Langford is what I would always refer to her as. Uh, there was the mother, Peggy, or her daughter, Abby. That, that's it. Um, you know, be, and, and here's the reason why. I learned that she was a uh, realtor. Uh, she also worked part-time at a uh, department store uh, located in Westfield. And, you know, I, again, learned that she was not the uh, either the selling agent or the listing agent for the property. And being right next door, I would I kind of surmised that, you know, at some point, maybe the previous owner and her may have had some type of a rapport. So why wouldn't you kind of look at your, you know, neighbor as being, you know, your agent? Uh, it was a substantial amount for the purchase of the home, I believe, like one point three million or one point six million. Um, and that would have been a nice you know, kind of commission for her and that she didn't get it, I thought maybe there might be, uh, you know, a little bit of resentment there. Additionally, you had done some surveillance on the house as well? We, we did. Uh, myself and another detective uh, did some surveillance. Um, I can't give you a date exactly, but at some point we, we uh, recognized the car, pulled up in front of home, uh, was kind of facing the wrong way uh and we kind of just watched no one exited the car but when it pulled off we were able to alert uh, patrol units to uh, stop the vehicle we id the uh the driver and uh the passenger and uh you know subsequently from there i uh you know investigated them a little bit more um the passenger in the car was a female she was a little bit more uh, willing to cooperate than the uh, the driver, um, which again, uh, I, you know, he starts speculating as to, you know, why is she kind of so willing to talk and him not? Um, so, you know, we looked in him a little bit more. I looked in him a little bit more. Uh, I did at some point uh, communicate with him and had him set up uh, for an interview at our headquarters. And uh, he was a no-show. Believe that. I mean, in fact, that happened twice where he was a no-show. So again, you, you know, you start speculating that, okay, well, if he kind of like, if he's got nothing to hide, why wouldn't he come in and kind of clear himself? And that's kind of how we look at it in law enforcement. And he was reluctant to do so. But we also knew that it was a uh, uh, female was the uh, profile from the uh, DNA. So, you know, then we're you know, thinking like, okay, well, she could have been the one who sealed the envelope, you know, that all of those type things. But uh, I don't recall his name. I do recall uh, he was a Hillsborough uh, resident. And uh, and then I, at some point, I believe he moved out of state. Um, so that kind of dried up. That was that. Hey. Now for the... 
for the big question, um, because so many people are fascinated by this case, and there's so many theories, in your professional opinion, who do you think was the watcher? Although the DNA suggests otherwise, meaning female, um, in my professional opinion, the uh, watcher was uh, Michael Lankford. And why do you think that? Let me back up and say this. I never had an opportunity to, to speak with him. I believe he was schizophrenic. Um, and there were just a lot of, like, kind of uh, comments out there by neighbors, you know, to, and kind of to quote them, like, you know, he was crazy, uh, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, that coupled with, uh, you know, there were uh, several people who looked at this uh, case um, some like kind of like the writing suggested it may have been an older person. Uh, so all things considered, uh, I would say it was uh, Michael Langford. Okay. Baron, what do you think went wrong with this case? Why is it still unsolved or considered a mystery? You know, I... Again, I'm not saying I'm the world's greatest or was the world's greatest uh, detective, but um, you know, I thought I, I thought I did my job well. Um, I, I think the fact that initially the matter wasn't taken seriously, um, and I think some time had gone by before uh, you, you know guys really started looking at it. Um, I think there was a lot of talk out there, you know, and I don't want to blame the Brodises on this, but, you know, they were obviously concerned. The letters uh, were very threatening to not only them, but to their children as well. And, you know, it, it was enough to obviously raise concern. And I, I just don't think the matter was uh, addressed properly right from the beginning. Um, and, you know, once you once people kind of know maybe you're looking at them, you, or the word is out, you know, what do you do? You kind of, like, back off, you go into a shell a little bit, and you try to, you know, either conceal yourself or conceal what you're doing. And I just think that, uh, you know, you got to strike when the iron's hot, and and that didn't happen in this matter. You think it got a little cold too soon? I think it got cold soon, and, uh, again, you, you know, it was looked at at that point as kind of more of a harassment than like a, a, a higher degree crime, like a terroristic threat. And, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm not defending the police here, but, uh, you know, Westfield's a busy town, you know, I mean, it's a nice town, but, you know, we were busy with investigating other matters and, and, you know, you kind of set up like a, uh, I guess kind of like a criminal triage type thing where you, you know, you kind of handle some of the tougher things or, or higher crime things um, and you prioritize. And and this was a, uh, at the time, a uh, harassment issue. Um, not that it should, should not have been looked into. It should have. I just, I just think some time went by and it kind of got stale and, and the word was out and, I think a lot of defenses were up at that point. Yeah, 
And, and the contents of the letters when those got out to the public and, you know, people were so fascinated by this almost sort of supernatural aspect, you know. Um, right. You, and, and you know how it is. You know, I mean, I'm kind of dating myself here, but you know the old telephone game, like, you know, the first person says something and then by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's, the story is totally convoluted. And I think, you know, once the story got out, I think people started putting their spin on it. And, you know, word gets out. It's it's a it's a like I said, it's a nice town. We were busy in terms of, uh, you know, the police work, but people talk and, you know, it the, the story was out there it was nothing. Uh, you know, everybody kind of knew or, you know, and, and then at that point, people drew their own conclusion or developed the theory. Sure. We all love to have our opinions, right? (laughs) (laughs) And everyone loves a mystery, too, so. Uh, Of course. Um, Is there anything else regarding the investigation or the Watcher or anything else regarding this that you'd like to share? You you know, only that, uh, you know, I feel sorry for the Brodus family. Um, You know, uh, I'm not, this isn't my time to poke my chest out, but. I'll just say that, you know, I really did once uh, I was kind of asked to look at it. I put forth my, you know, my best effort in it. Um, I'm not going to say other people in the police department didn't either. I just think that the time kind of slipped by and, um, you know, they were they were victims. And, uh, you you know, it should have been handled as such. Agreed. Thank you, Baron. And there you have it. One opinion by a detective who investigated the case of The Watcher. But will we ever really know for sure? Probably not. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support it is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. Or you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is edited by Moen Spo. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741. Thank you.